Thanks, Chris. Um, um, Jen, you can stop screen sharing. And okay, there we go. Um, so, hi everybody. It's really great to see everybody again. Um, this is kind of new and it's kind of different and it's kind of uh, strange and we're not exactly sure what we're doing because this is our first shot. But it's going pretty well so far. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> I think we got it figured out. We had some technical issues earlier in the week, but we've sorted them out. And so, um, you know, this isn't ideal for church. This is, you know, church should be personal. It should be us gathered together. But in times of emergency, this is as close as we're going to get. So um, just uh, pray for each other and watch out for each other. Um, I've seen some statistics. California is the spread in California per capita is really low compared to other states. I think we're about the lowest. So that's really exciting. Um, this probably number of reasons for that. Part of the social distancing is, I'm sure social distancing is part of that too. So um, we're gonna continue to do this and uh, we'll see how things go. So um, with that, let me open us in a word of prayer and then we'll take a look at our text. Uh, Lord, um, we have a lot to learn from you and we can do that together corporately. We can do that with friends. Um, thank you for this technology that allows us to connect even when we're separate. And Lord, I pray that the technology would fade, that it would just disappear into the background and we would focus on your word and on your glory and on Jesus Christ. So be with us now as we do this new thing. But Lord, may it be a very old thing, the preaching of your word. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So where we're at in Acts, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we did the end of chapter 24, and that was um, the inauguration of the covenant. Um, the, the law had been read to the people. Moses approached and said, this is what God is offering. And they said, yes, we'll do that. And so there was a, a sacrifice at the mountain, and Moses went up on the mountain again at the end. And that, that was the inauguration of that covenant, the old covenant. Um, where we're at now is we're starting the next section of Exodus. And you remember the outline that I gave for us was the first part is God redeems us. Then the second part was God rules us. And this third part now is God with us. And with the part on uh, God with us, what we're going to see primarily is the tabernacle. Um, that's what is going on. And so as I was preparing for this, looking through the commentators, um, this section of, of Genesis or of Exodus, because it's about a third of the book, uh, really through some of them. They were really confused why there was a sudden change in tone. And so, you know, think about it. Where have we been so far in Exodus and where we're at now? Um, up until this point, it's been this epic story. This, you know, this, the, the Egyptians enslaving the Hebrews and killing their children, and Moses is miraculously delivered, and he, escaped, he, uh, he kills an Egyptian and, and flees to Midian. And when he returns, there's nine plagues, and there's a Passover, and then they part the Red Sea, and it crashes in and destroys the Egyptian army. And then there's water that's too bitter to drink, and it's made sweet. And then there's no food, and food is showered from heaven for them. And then they approach Mount Sinai, and there's a... a, a a cloud that surrounds it and the mountain shakes and a trumpet blast and, and all of this majestic stuff. And then we get to this part and we hear, you shall also make curtains of goat hair and for a tent for the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of each cubit or each curtain four cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains. What happened? Why the sudden change? Why go from this epic narrative to suddenly these, these detailed instructions? And it's not just that, it's repeated. 
Um, Moses is told what the tabernacle will look like. Then he talks about them building it, then them setting it up. And, and so we hear it over and over again. And, and it can be kind of confusing. But I think the answer to why Moses does that is right in front of their face. It's right in front of them, and they miss it. So if you look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 25, Moses says, God tells Moses, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So why does Moses go into all this detail? Because this is how God is going to dwell in their midst. Shouldn't that be important? Shouldn't that be something significant? Um, if, if some important person, some um, a very important maybe a politician or a entertainer or the Queen of England was going to come and stay at your house, wouldn't you do something? Wouldn't you like clean the bedroom or you know, maybe give her your bedroom? If somebody important was coming, you would, you would respond, you would react. So that's, I think, what's going on is this is where God is going to dwell with them. When I first went in the Air Force, my first Air Force base was Seymour Johnson in North Carolina. And I was working on an airplane that had been grounded for almost two weeks. Two weeks was the magic number. When you got to that, you had to explain to higher headquarters why that airplane hadn't flown. And so I was in the hangar, head deep into this F-4, ringing out the wires, trying to figure out what's going on. And I needed a tool. So I cut through the the um, the area to get to the tool crib and the boss of the whole maintenance group comes and says, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, I'm working on an airplane. You can't be here. Go home. I was like, but this is about to get, you know, this is almost two weeks. He said, okay, get your stuff and get out of here. Do not come back in here. And he was really freaking out. And you're like, I was like, what is going on? He was mopping floors. He was having floors mopped, uh, ceilings polished. He sent home people who looked scruffy. And what it turned out was General Creech, the TAC commander, was coming to visit the, the big boss over him. And so that's what I think what Moses is doing is, is this is where God is going to dwell. That's why it takes up so much real estate. That's why he goes over it so much is because it's very important. Um, and so since there are multiple chapters and multiple details in here, um, we can sometimes get lost in the details or we can kind of glaze over and kind of, you know, glassy eyed and, um, why am I reading this for the third time? Um, or another approach that I've seen is, is some Christians will dig into the details and find all kinds of meaning in every little thing. Why was there 11 curtains? Why not 12 curtains? Why were the curtains that size? And, and those things are good to reflect on. It's not a bad idea to do that, better than glazing over, I suppose. Um, but I'm not sure that that's exactly the, the right way or the best way to read it. Um, we do, as a matter of fact, have a New Testament example of how to interpret the tabernacle. Uh, Ramey read from Hebrews this morning. I want to back up a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9 is where the author of Hebrews approaches the temple and, and to discuss it. So listen to what he has to say beginning, right at the beginning of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So what the author of Hebrews does is he begins to take the same approach that Exodus does, goes into the detail. Here's all the things that were in there. But then listen to what he says. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So he says, those are very interesting. There's a lot of detail, but he doesn't say, and they don't really count, so we're not going to look at them. And he doesn't say, ah, oh, it's not important. 
What he does say is we can't go into detail on those. And if we take a cue from him, we're going to ask, well, then what should we be focusing on? And so what he does is he goes into greater detail on something more important. Not that those aren't important, but he goes to something more important. And so later on in the chapter, he says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of bloods, the blood of bulls or goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So if I take my cue from the New Testament, the way I'm going to approach the tabernacle is to not get lost in the details, though they're there, but to head to something greater. There's something more that we can learn from that. And so that's where we're going to go. Now, when I was preparing for all of this, when I was working on this, I came across a book by a man named Vern Poitras. Um, he teaches at Westminster in uh, Pennsylvania, and he wrote a book, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. And um, he actually has a really good way of approaching the question of all of this detail in the temple. Um, so let me just read a brief excerpt from what he had to say. He said, the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a shadow of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. It showed what God was like and what was needed to deal with sin. In this way, it symbolizes what the Messiah was to do for our salvation. It was like a shadow of the Messiah cast backward in time into the Old Testament period. The earthly tabernacle was made of earthly things and could never equal the splendor or holiness of God in heaven. The earthly sacrifices of bulls and goats could never equal the blood of Christ who cleansed us from our sin forever. Doesn't that sound like Hebrews 9? It sounds like that's the approach that he takes. And that's the approach I'm going to take with it. Is We'll mention the, the, the things that are going on, but we won't go into detail on them. We'll look more um, in a broader stroke at it. We'll, we'll step back and look a little more broadly. Now, um, the, um, the way we'll do this, I think, to start is we'll step into the, the um, Hebrews uh, sandals for a moment um, and ask, what did it look like for them? Um, and what we'll see as we work through that, what we'll do is we'll look at the tabernacle a lot. We'll start with their perspective. We'll touch briefly on the temple because really the temple is just an extension of the tabernacle. And then it should surprise no one, we'll get to Jesus. And Jesus will be that, that final thing. But um, where we might get lost in all the details, what we hope to accomplish, what I hope to pull out of this is, there is actually something for us in this tabernacle, in this discussion of the tabernacle. It, it is going to show us, through that trajectory from the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus, it's going to show us what our place in the world is. Um, so that's, that's where we're going to head. So let's step into the, the Hebrew sandals for a moment and, and look at this taber, tabernacle. Um, chapter 25, it's actually asking for a contribution from the people. And it says, as their hearts move them. So that God isn't saying, give me this stuff or I'll zap you. What he's saying is, if you're moved, if you would like to contribute to this, that's what I want you to do as your heart moves you. And then look, what are the things that he mentions about the temple first, or the tabernacle first? Does he say how big it's going to be or how many bulls and goats need to be offered or uh, what the fire would be like or something like that? He doesn't. Listen to where he starts. Um, in, chapter th or in verse 3, he explains what the contributions will be. And he says, they will be gold and silver and bronze, purple and blue and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil, and on and on and on. Where does that list start? 
it starts, first of all, with precious metals. Gold and silver, yeah, that's precious. We get that. Bronze, that's no big deal. Back then when they wrote this, it was a big deal. This was the dawn of the Bronze Age. And so bronze would not be a precious metal, you know, in the category of, um, of uh, silver and gold, but it was still something that was very valuable. So the first thing that you see about the temple is the, the materials are pricey. Now, the next thing is that he points out is color. And, and I found that really interesting that he would say, look at the colors that are involved here. Um, blue and purple and scarlet. Now, in our day, we can get any color we want. It's really easy. Um, Jim and uh, uh, Ramey and a couple other folks were working on putting up some batting in the uh, sanctuary to dampen a bit of an echo that's there. And so one of the things that we're at right now is looking at fabric and, and what will it look like and what color will it be. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. And we could get any color we want because we have chemistry and we can, through modern chemistry, create any color. But back in these days with the Hebrews, the only way that they could get these colors is if they found some natural source to dye the stuff. So the color purple. Um, remember in Acts, when we met Lydia, she was a seller of purple. And I said, that was expensive stuff uh, because they had to find this one particular sea urchin that secreted a purple dye that they could use. And then they had to get enough of it to dye the stuff. Um, that's kind of the thing that's going on here with purple and blue. They had to get the right things to create blue and scarlet. So when you approach the temple, you see, first of all, the gold and the silver, and then you see these colors. And if you've ever seen pictures or diagrams of the temples or the tabernacle, sometimes it looks a little bland. But I want to show you something real quick that um, somebody made a model of the uh, tabernacle. We're not sure um, exactly what it really looked like, but this is kind of a, a, an approximation. And what I want you to notice is, look at how colorful that thing is. It's not this brown smudge in the desert. There's, there's all of these bright and vibrant colors. And then right at the front, you see these bronze pillars standing out front. Now, there is that cover on top of it. And the cover may have been a little bit more bland. Um, but as Israel is, is watching the tabernacle be set up and taken down, they're seeing this flash of colors in, in an otherwise pretty bland desert. And so what does that tell us? What is that explaining to us um, about God? Um, again, Poitras has, has got a, he, he says it really well, so I'm just going to steal his, uh, his quote. Um, he said, The tabernacle expresses another side of the character of God, namely that he is holy and inaccessible. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong quote. Um, I can't find the quote. So what, what the, the tabernacle shows us like that is, is, first of all, God is very, if it's expressing who God is, the tabernacle, it says that he is ultimately worthy. He is worth a lot. He is beautiful. These elaborate colors and these, these rich fabrics, it shows that he is worthy. And then another aspect of it, so it's not only beautiful, but there's another aspect of it, too, and that was what I began to read, is the tabernacle expresses another side of the character of God, namely that he's holy and inaccessible. The altar and several coverings and two sets of curtains bar the way into his presence. So as, as you look at this and you think about the tabernacle, you see, first of all, its beauty with the bronze pillars and the, the elaborate colors. Um, but then the next thing you see is that there's a big courtyard built around it. 
and there is a curtain that prevents you from going in and, and only a certain group of people are allowed in and then only a certain group of people are allowed into the intersection and then the ultimate inter portion, the Holy of Holies, only one man is allowed in. So what it shows is that God is beautiful and we should be drawn in that direction, but it also shows that he is walled off. He is separate. Um, so when you came into the courtyard, the first thing you would see was what's called a bronze laver, which is a, like a big bath and an altar. And so when you came into that court, what that said to you was you need to be clean and you need to atone for your sins before you can approach this beauty that is God. And so that was kind of the message to the Israelites that they saw in this tabernacle on a regular basis. Um, not only did they see those things, but the pillar of cloud rested on top. The, the presence of God filled the tabernacle and appeared over the mercy seat, but only one person could ever go in there. So that's kind of the approach that they had, is they come to the tabernacle and as appealing as it is, it's also threatening in that you have to be clean before you go in. So those sacrifices were necessary. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a bland kind of place. It was actually gorgeous. And so this kind of leads us uh, to the tabernacle or to the temple. Um, the temple was beautiful as well, wasn't it? Um, the temple is really more of the same kind of thing, except instead of being portable like the tabernacle was, the temple is set up and rooted in a place that God has taken them. And, and it kind of pictures the difference between the two is while they're traveling through the wilderness, when they get to the land and before the judges, while the judges are ruling, they're still worshiping in a tent. Um, they're establishing themselves in the land. But once they're established and God brings them their king and King Solomon ascends to the throne, then they can build a temple. And that's supposed to be fixed. It's not supposed to be moved around. It isn't portable like the uh, tabernacle was. And, and it was a beautiful thing to see the temple. It was, it was magnificent. It was much larger. I think they said something like twice the size um, of the original temple that Solomon built um, was so much bigger and so much more beautiful. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, he did focus on God. He did reflect on who God is. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, this is part of his prayer. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. So Solomon's reflection on the, tabern or the temple, as he built this beautiful, elaborate thing, he looks to it and he says, this is supposed to be God's house. It can't contain God. God can't fit. It won't swallow him up. He won't fit in there. But, Lord, you've put your name there, and so hear prayers. And so imagine from the, Isra the, uh, the um, Israelites' perspective, as they're at Mount Sinai, and they're hearing about this tabernacle, they've seen this tabernacle be set up. Their most recent experience was at Mount Sinai when the, tr when the, the, the mountain shook, and it was covered in smoke, and flames shot off the top, and a trumpet blast, and a voice so loud that it shook them. They terrified. And they, I don't think any of them would look and go, yeah, that can fit in this temple. That, that can fit in this, this tent. Um, so what does it mean then that God is present? He's going with them. He's going to dwell with them. But he still maintains the divine uh, attribute of omnipresence. He's everywhere. There's no place you can go to escape him. Um, 
when David wrote the psalm, he said, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. If I go to the seas, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. He recognized God is everywhere. So then what does it mean for God to say that he's present in the temple, um, that he's going to dwell there? Well, just like at Sinai, there was a special appearance of his glory, a special version of his presence that would attend the temple. And so the point of that was that they would hear, they would go there and pray, and he would hear them. And he gave them a physical, a visible manifestation that he was there to hear their prayers. Um, so that was the temple that Solomon built. And Solomon built it, and, and he said, you know, if we, when, when we turn away from you and you send us into exile, if we turn and we pray toward this house, hear our prayers. And even his prayer, he said, Lord, you can't fit in this, but hear my prayer when I pray toward this house. So that was his approach was, this isn't all who God is. This isn't the summation of everything he was, but it is a place where he promised to meet with us, to hear us, to be with us at, at that point. Now, Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and took away most of the stuff out of it, hauled the people away. Um, and Ezra came back 70 years later and he brought some people with him and they rebuilt the temple. They brought the articles from the temple back. Um, but even then, it was not quite as glorious. It wasn't as beautiful as it was before. In Ezra 3, uh, it talks about some of the priests and the old men who had seen the original temple. When they saw this reconstructed one, they wept. Um, and it wasn't tears of joy because the way that, that um, it's described in Ezra, uh, Ezra 3.13, it says, So the people could not distinguish between the sound of joyful shout and the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So he draws a distinction between the shout of joy because the people who didn't know the previous temple saw the new temple and went, this is awesome. And the people who knew the previous temple went, oh, Lord, it's just not there. It's not what it should be. Um, one of the problems was they began to associate the temple with a sense of national pride. This, this shows how wonderful of a nation we are because look at how glorious our temple was. And you see the beginning of that in Ezra as, as the men are weeping. They could be weeping for good reasons, but um, they could also be rejoicing for good reasons, or maybe not. Maybe they, they were seeing this as the reconstitution of their nation. We're coming back. Look, at we got a temple. Isn't that great? Um, so the temple lasted um, quite a while. What happened was around 20 B.C., Herod the Great, the father to the other Herods, decided to enlarge the temple. And so he, he expanded it, he, he rebuilt it, he made it much more big and, and much more glorious. And it was just a wonderful looking thing. And the reason that Herod did that is because he wanted his name associated with it. He wanted people to remember him. And it, he wanted to give the, the nation a source of national pride. And really, I mean, we get a hint from the New Testament that that's what happened. Because in Mark 13, um, as the disciples are walking with Jesus to the temple, uh, they say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They had this sense of pride in the, in the temple um, because it was so magnificent. It was fairly new to them, too. I mean, it was only built probably 50 years before. So that would be something that they would be very proud of. Um, but there's a problem with taking the tabernacle and turning or the temple and turning it into a source of national pride is it was never intended to be something that you're proud of in and of itself. It was, as we saw with the tabernacle, supposed to show you this is what your God is like. This is what it's like to, to draw near to God. There is wealth and beauty and richness. There's also sacrifice. 
There's a way in, there's, there's a provision made for you. And so since the people probably spent too much time focusing on the tabernacle or the temple instead of the God that they should be worshiping, it was wiped out. It was eliminated in 70 AD. Um, God doesn't tolerate that, especially if it rivals him. Um, it was supposed to be pointing to him. And so this kind of draws us into Jesus. And so um, Jesus did not oppose the temple. He didn't look at the temple and say, oh, that's old covenant stuff. We don't need that. Um, he, he goes into the temple and in a rage, he, he flips over tables and, and takes cords and turns them into belts or belts into cords and beats these people who are selling things in the temple. He, he demanded that the temple be used for the way it should be used. And what it says in John chapter 2 is um, when this happened, uh, he says that his disciples remembered later, it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. So that's John chapter 2. Is John moves the cleansing of the temple to the beginning of his gospel instead of at the end. Um, but it was a zeal that Jesus had for, for the house of the Lord. God he wanted it to be used the way it was intended to be used. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. And it was supposed to be a time to draw close to God. It was supposed to be God dwelling with us. But it turned into a national monument. And it turned into something that they were all proud of instead of um, something that they, they went to see and to meet with God. Now, I, I'm saying that in broad strokes. Um, obviously, it's not true of every single person because in Luke, we met Anna and... Um, uh, Zechariah, who were at the temple and were seeking God, um, and uh, Simeon, Simeon were there seeking God. And so it wasn't like everybody. It's like today, if you say um, our nation is into something, it doesn't mean every person, but generally the tone of the nation was that was a, a source of pride. Um, and so God did want the temple there. It was part of his plan. It was something he, he had asked for. Um, in Ezra, when they're rebuilding the temple and the building stops, God sends them two prophets, Haggai and uh, Zechariah, to tell them to restart it. So there was a desire and an aim for the temple. But here's the thing. The tabernacle was temporary. It moved around. It was, it was a temporary structure. The temple was supposed to be a permanent thing because now we're in the land. We have our nation. But even the temple was never supposed to be permanent. It wasn't going to last forever. Um, so in Hebrews again, back in Hebrews chapter 8, um, the author says, speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish. So the author of Hebrews writing after Jesus' death and resurrection, before the destruction of the temple, and he's looking at it, he knows that's not going to last. Um, that's going to go away. There was a point at which that temple would be gone. Uh, so how is it then that God would dwell with us if he was going to eliminate the temple? And so that's where we pick up in John again, John chapter 2. So the Jews said, after Jesus cleansed the temple, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you give us for doing these things? They were mad that he had driven away the, the money changers. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews said to him, it's taken 45 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. So how is God going to dwell with us without a temple? Well, he did it in his son. Um, the temple was supposed to not contain all of who God is and, and you know, restrict him to it, but it contained the fullness of who he was. And that's what Colossians 1.19 says, in Jesus 
the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And, and there are um, a few other verses that we could go to, to to bring that out, that he is the, the new temple or the tabernacle. Um, the idea is, if we go to the tabernacle to see what God is like, if we go to the temple to see what God is like, then we should be able to go to Jesus and say, this is what we're going to see what God is like. And that's exactly what happened. John 14, 9, Jesus said, I've been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When we see Jesus, we're seeing the fullness of who God is, the, the, the majesty of who he was. And then John, in, in a, the most beautiful way possible, explains that that's exactly who Jesus was. In John 1, the end of the prologue, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word for dwelt is actually the word skeno, and what skeno means is tent. And now it can be uh, used in a couple of different ways. Uh, for example, Peter talks about the, the tent of his body. You know, he's, he's getting ready to die and he knows it. Um, but at its basic idea is that idea of tent. And that's the word that's used in Exodus 26.9 in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the tabernacle. So what John is telling us is the word, God himself became flesh. He inhabited a, um, a tabernacle, a temple. And he tabernacled amongst us. And so that is the, the, the role that Jesus had is, is he replaces the temple. He replaces the tabernacle. And it's interesting that he is now mobile again. The temple, it was fixed. You couldn't pick it up and move around. But the tabernacle, they could move that all over the place. They could move it from Sinai to uh, the wilderness into uh, Canaan and then to wherever they went with it after that and then move it into uh, Jerusalem at the end of its journey. The temple was fixed. It wasn't going anywhere. Jesus comes, and Jesus is walking around Galilee and um, Samaria and into Judea and Jerusalem, and he is, he is going around. And so now God is dwelling with his people, and he's mobile, and he's showing his glory uh, that way. So here's the problem. If the point of the tabernacle was for God to dwell with us, remember that's back to Exodus. That's what this section of Exodus is about, is this is God supposed to be dwelling with us. We have a problem because Jesus died and he rose again and then physically, bodily ascended into heaven. So he's not here. So how is it that then God is dwelling with his people if Jesus, the temple, the new temple, is ascended into heaven? If, like the author of Hebrews said, he went into the real one, the one that actually exists into heaven. How, how does that mission get fulfilled then? And that's what I said at the beginning, is this is going to tell us our place in the world. And so here's the answer to that problem of if Jesus is physically in heaven, how is the temple still with us? Um, and the answer is, it's the church. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, uh, him who fills all in all. So the church is the body of Christ. And remember the body we saw, his body we saw earlier was the temple. He, he in, indwelled it that way. And so that's the beginning of the answer is our role in the world is to be in Christ, that new temple. Um, so Paul gets even more explicit later on in Ephesians. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, 
but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you are built together into a dwelling place for God the Spirit. So how does God dwell amongst his people now? He dwells amongst his people in the church, in the Holy Spirit, in us. And we are those living stones that are being joined together. That's how Peter describes it in Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2.4. Uh, you come to him as a living stone rejected by men, but chosen in, God's, uh, but chosen in the sight of God as precious. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So the church now is Jesus in the nation, in the world, uh, living in, in his presence there. And so that is the, the important part. And so that is your, your role in the world. That's your place in the world, is you are to walk in the world as a Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit, as a temple of the living God. And, and we are intended to show what God is actually like. That's what he wants to accomplish in us. That's what he's looking for to do into us, is to show what he's like. And, and I get that from Ephesians 3.8, uh, 3.8 through 10. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable great riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is, the what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Through the church... God is going to make known his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So our role as church is to walk in that light, is to walk in that way, is to show forth God's wisdom in choosing us. And it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect and that we're going to do everything exactly right. We stumble. We, we have problems. But what that shows is even more, it shows God's grace and his mercy. He chose to, to do this. And so he does it in front of the rulers and authorities. He does it in front of the angels. The angels never got a second chance. They never got a redeemer. The angels who fell were consigned to eternal darkness, and the angels who didn't fall were, were still with God. But when the angels, who are a little bit above us, look down and they see us, they see God having mercy. And so it shows to them his work in us, this is what God is like. He's full of, he's rich with mercy. And doesn't that sound like the temple? Because the temple didn't say nobody can come in. It said, wash yourself. It said, offer a sacrifice, atone for your sins, and then enter. And then come into the courts and, and have fellowship. You can offer fellowship offerings and sin offerings and free will offerings. And, and this is a way to associate with God. God said, listen, when you pray towards my house, I will hear you. And what Jesus said, since he's replaced the temple, is he said, if you ask anything in my name, it will be heard in heaven. You will get it. And he says, look, I didn't come to intercede for you like this. I came so that you could go right to the Father, so that you have access to him. And so this is what it means for us to walk in the world. This is the message of the tabernacle. Now, this is a shadow cast backwards in the Old Testament. The Israelites couldn't see all that that meant. But if they had been following, if they're walking along with that, what they'll see is, they will get hints of these messages so that in, in the fullness of time when Jesus comes, they should latch onto that and go, that's what that was about. That was what was going on. That's what Simeon and Anna did when the baby was presented to them in the temple. Is, this is it. This is what's going on. This is what God had promised all along. This is what we've been waiting for. And so that is the pattern that we get from the temple. That's the, the pattern that we get from the tabernacle. 
And the good news is that's us now. That's our place in the world is we are that tabernacle. We are the ones who show and bring God to the rest of the world and we're mobile. And we're not just one tent moving in places, we're multiple. And it's all of these individual living stones being brought together that builds this holy and this beautiful um, temple. So think of the end, Revelation chapter 21, when the new heavens and the new earth are there. What John says is there's no temple. There's no need for a temple anymore. It's gone because God is right there dwelling in the midst of his people. How can he do that? He needs a temple. The people are the temple. They are the living stones that build the temple. And so that is the picture of the tabernacle that they're supposed to get. Um, and they won't. Um, they'll, they'll misunderstand it. And we'll see that because if I remember right, what comes next is going to be uh, the golden calf. And we'll see how they get it wrong. Um, but most of the rest of the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. There's some laws that go with it, some discussion of the sacrifices. Um, but right in the middle of it, there's a couple more stories. So we have a few more uh, Sundays to go through Exodus before we're done with the narrative portions. But think about your role in the world. Think about what God is calling us to do. He's made us into a temple. Um, the people at the beginning, they voluntarily gave stuff. He didn't come and force you to be this. He didn't say, I'm going to beat you into submission. He came and offered you this beautiful thing. And from your heart, you said, yes, of course I would love that. And so in, instead of asking the, the Israelites to build the temple, he builds it. He, he draws these people together. He draws people in and he builds us into this beautiful temple. So let us somehow in a pandemic, and I don't know how we're doing it right, show forth the love and the glory of God and to show those attributes of who Jesus Christ is in our own person, in our own being, and, and how we live in the world. So um, let's close in prayer and figure this out as we go together. Um, how do we do this without so, with social distancing? How do we love our neighbors and, and show them the love of Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that you have built a temple uh, a, a temple you said you would build in three days, and that was your body rising from the dead. But also, Lord, um, just like Herod expanded the temple, you continued to expand your temple, your body, by building your church on earth. And so, Lord, as we, we wrestle through this pandemic and, and uh, social distancing and isolation and, and uh, all of those other things, Lord, would you show us exactly what it is that you want us to be and to do in this situation, in this time? And Lord, give us the strength, the faith, and the, and the bravery to go out and do those things, to be Christ in this world. Uh, Lord, um, make your temple glorious, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.